0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Quad Shot, where we help you down and digest the day's most pertinent cancer news. Hello and welcome to The Quadcast. Here we are live in Chicago at Astro 2019. We're recording uh, some special sessions here at this conference. And I've got Laura with me, and she's going to tell us a little bit about what we have in mind and what you can hope to gain from listening to these special sessions.
1: Hi, Sam. I'm really excited to see what comes of these special edition quadcasts coming out of Astra 2019. When we first started talking about doing an audible version of the Quadshot newsletter, a big goal was to not only provide the, um, a hands-free way to take in the Quadshot, but also to add some supplemental information that helps uh, readers and listeners really delve into the data in a tangible um, and fun way so one way to do this we found is to really learn a little bit more about who is authoring these practice changing results so you know we often see the name sometimes uh, the same name on many papers on the newsletter that we put out and so we really want to find out who are the people behind the names and so that's going to be something that we get at with some of these special interviews here um, in chicago
0: all right folks you've heard it we are the quadcast and we're bringing you some live special sessions from Astro 2019 i hope you enjoy them first up we're going to dive into prostate cancer data and management with the author dan sprat take a listen here we are live from Astro 2019, and we are honored to have Dan Spratt with us. Uh, we've also got the co-founders of the Quad Shot here, Caleb and Laura. And uh, we are just so honored to have, uh, who has now become an inspiration to a generation of aspiring and current radiation oncologist, Dr. Spratt, to talk about his secondary analysis of RTOG 9601.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, it's a huge uh, honor to be speaking to you guys. I think you guys have created you know, a fantastic uh, resource um, for physicians, residents and the like. Um, so we're presenting uh, at this meeting a secondary analysis of RTOG 9601. And that, for those who don't know, is a phase three randomized trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine about two years ago it took about 760 men with biochemically recurrent prostate cancer and randomized them to receive either with salvage radiation therapy either placebo or high dose bicalutamide for 2 years and overall the trial was positive it had a 5% improvement in survival at 12 years the p value just made it it was 0.04 and that's great. It's a positive phase three randomized trial, and it has changed astro AUA guidelines. They now recommend hormone therapy for all patients. They should be offered hormone therapy who receive salvage radiation. Um, but as people always like to say, the devil's in the details. And so I've written many papers about, well, do all patients benefit the same? And I think to answer this in the most rigorous way, you actually got to do it in the context of a randomized trial. So what people may not realize that was not in that New England Journal paper is that 44% of patients in that trial had a persistently elevated PSA after surgery of over 0.1. That is actually very normal in that era, um, but nowadays it's about 5 to 8% of patients. It's not that common. And second of all, about 60% of the patients on the trial had what we call late salvage radiation, where the PSA was watched, and it kept rising, rising, rising beyond 0.5, and some of the PSAs were as high as four. And what we know now from a, a big, nice study in JCO from Tendal Carr in 2016, and it's kind of the updated Stevenson nomogram, is that at low PSAs, less than 0.5, it's like 70% plus or minus of men are cured with radiation long-term. When you get to PSAs of like one, two, three, four, almost no one is cured. And now with PET imaging data, PSMA PET, there's almost perfect correlation between those biochemical recurrence rates and the detection of regional and distant mets on PSMA. So those guys with, that are getting late salvage radiation, especially really late salvage, almost all of them have metastatic disease. So of course, logically hormone therapy improves survival in men with metastatic disease. But does it help men? That is the standard of care to treat today when they un- when they actually have a biochemical failure, let's say a PSA of 0.2. So what we did is we took the trial, and you know, there's a, people will always say, well, in secondary or subgroup analysis, you got to do it statistically valid. There's credibility criteria. So you, we first started looking that what a lot of people didn't realize is they stratified this trial by a PSA of less than 1.5 or greater than 1.5, and that means they inherently balance the groups. Um, when they stratify. And so 85% of men on this trial fell into that PSA of 0.2 to 1.5. So it's almost the entire trial. So it's not some small little niche secondary analysis. And when you look at the overall survival curves, they are almost basically superimposable with at 12 years, it was 77% versus 76%. P value is 0.36. So this was never, you know, not published in the New England Journal paper, but the people who benefited and almost where all of the benefit was, was in that PSA of 1.5 and greater. And they nicely and potentially conveniently, that's the figure they put in the paper, showing a 25% survival benefit with those high PSAs. And what we're simply showing is that in the majority of patients, there was no survival difference. Now, again, the devil's in the detail a little bit in that we performed a lot of tests to show that really it is a continuum. It's not like there's a magic cut point. Probably patients with PSAs over 0.6, there is a survival benefit on that trial. When you get down to PSAs of 0.2, 0.3, there's no difference in metastasis. There's no difference in survival. In fact, survival trends towards being worse. And as we show there was actually a twofold, fold a hazard ratio of like 1.94, a, a two-fold worsening of other cause mortality from the hormone therapy. Uh, and it was a, about a 9% absolute worsening at 12 years. And to see what could be driving this, we looked at high grade, grade three to five cardiac events and grade three to five neurologic events because there's all this buzz about could be hormone therapy worsening these. And for both the overall cohort, the and patients receiving early salvage radiation therapy, there was about a three to four and a half fold increase odds of developing a high grade cardiac event. And that's likely what we think is driving this increase in other cause mortality. So, you know, for me, what this is really telling us is that what we have is we've got RTOG 9601 using the protocol stratification, no survival at somewhat lower PSAs, the Jatug 16 trial was just presented at ASCO earlier this year. 740 patients, almost identical size, long term follow up now, and it showed no survival benefit. So you've got about 1,400 patients where there's no sign of survival benefit and some concerns towards harm. And so the way I interpret this data is really that for really low PSAs, 0.2, 0.3, there is yet any data, prospective or retrospective, that you are improving the rates of metastasis or survival. And so off trial, I do not recommend the use of hormone therapy in general for the population. And I think the ASTRO-AUA guidelines, as I've even written about uh, in the editorial to the PRO paper, um, the guidelines, that I think you know hormone therapy doesn't intrinsically benefit all patients. And we've already known this in localized disease, intermediate risk disease, we have a paper to be coming out in the next year where we took RTOG 9408 and split it into that favorable, unfavorable intermediate risk. And we show in a randomized trial favorable intermediate, there's no metastasis or survival benefit, and unfavorable, there is. There's just really no difference. And I've even shown in one of my editorials in Red Journal that if you superimpose the 9408 curves and in intermediate risk to the 9601 curves, they're identical. So, although we think 9601 is this terrible population, yeah, that's terrible in the context of salvage radiation, but in the context of just prostate cancer, it behaves almost identical to intermediate risk in RTOG 9408, where I think the majority of people do not give hormones for favorable intermediate.
1: Thanks, Dan. That was a really helpful summary that I think was really easy takeaway for our listeners and um, for me, actually. Um, When looking at your abstracts on the secondary analysis, I think there's one snippet that really captures the essence of what you're trying to say. Um, It says the interaction test of PSA and hormone therapy benefit for overall survival was significant. Um, I think we kind of have the nuts and bolts of what that means from what you just said, but for the non-statisticians out there, can you um, explain to us really what this interaction test is telling us? Is it telling us that even a relative benefit disappears?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question that I think all, you know, I don't think I knew what an interaction test was early in residency. And I think it's something that increasingly is important for uh, residents and practitioners to know because we're sort of in an era that we're seeking predictive biomarkers. And just to kind of recap what that is, everything we use in prostate cancer is prognostic and not predictive, right? T-stage, Gleason score, PSA, even TNM staging. It just means if you've got a high Gleason, you do bad after surgery, you do bad after radiation, you do bad after hormones, it's prognostic. And that is helpful and that's how we guide treatment. But predictive is like, you know, in EGFR mutant lung cancer, you specifically benefit from this specific therapy more or less than another group. And so this is really one of the first in a randomized trial, predictive biomarkers that's ever been shown. And it's something as simple as PSA. And PSA, interestingly enough, I wouldn't call it a biologically predictive biomarker. Like PSA tells us some magic about the biology. I, In my mind, I, I'm coining the term, it's an anatomic predictive biomarker. And it goes back to that data I told you from the PSMA PET scans. When your PSA is 0.2, 80 plus percent of the time, if you radiate them, they have a PSA response, and their disease is likely only in the pelvis. When the PSA is two, it's like 15% of the time the disease is only in the pelvis. So it's an anatomic predictive biomarker because at high PSAs, radiation is clearly not enough, and hormone therapy has a benefit on metastatic disease, especially long-term hormone therapy. So what the interaction test is, is there's three components to an interaction test. You have the therapy, so in this case, plus or minus bicolutamide. You have the outcome, survival. And then you have the variable of interest, in this case, PSA or the biomarker PSA. And you see, is there an interaction? And there is. And so uh, you'll see in the presentation tomorrow, there's actually an interaction for not just survival. There's also a significant interaction for metastasis as well. It sort of further strengthens this all. So what that really means is that intrinsically, patients with PSA's that are low, 0.2. Not only is there less absolute benefit, but as you alluded to, the the relative benefit is actually for survival. It's on the opposite side of one. It looks like it may be harming them. For high PSAs, like PSA 1.5, not only is there a huge absolute benefit, but the relative benefit that has ratio is you know far less than one. It's about 0.45. So, I think that PSA should be used as probably the most important variable in when you decide who to use hormone therapy, but you'd still need to factor all the other variables um, in on top of it. It's not, you know, there probably are patients with PSAs of 0.2 who will benefit, and there's probably patients with PSAs of one that won't benefit, but I think this at least is a true predictive biomarker to help you make these decisions with your patients.
1: So I really find that fascinating because um, I've always just thought about ADT very analogous to um, hormone receptor-positive breast cancer and that there's virtually always some relative benefit with giving some type of endocrine therapy to those patients, and it's just a question of, well, what's the absolute benefit? And so, in that case, life expectancy becomes a huge part of the picture. Um, if the patient's expected to live a long time, then perhaps it is worth, even if it's for a small absolute benefit. Um, But this is really, I think, kind of mind-blowing that you may actually be harming these patients um, with zero benefit um, with the low PSA. So that's really incredible.
2: And one thing to just remember is that the doses we use today for salvage radiation, about 70 gray plus or minus most people use, Um, That's a high dose for microscopic disease, right? I mean, breast cancer, they use less than that. Most cancers for microscopic disease, you use less than that. And prostate cancer is one of, if anything, a somewhat sensitive cancer. It's not like it's a renal cell or sarcoma. So I think that when you talk about why do we use hormone therapy in intact prostate cancer, one of, not the only, but one of the benefits is this radiosensitization phenomenon um, to decrease local recurrence. But when you're giving 70 gray, um, it's unclear how much hormone, you know, hormone therapy is going to radiosensitize that disease. What is even more, you know, it's hard to do this kind of by mic. But what you'll see actually in the discussant slides of the talk tomorrow, that n- most people don't dive into. If you actually look at the metastasis curves for the Jatug 16 trial and the RTOG 9601 trial, what you'll see is that hormone therapy for early salvage radiation patients is simply delaying metastasis, not curing more men. The tails of the curves are completely parallel. They never result in a tail. Like a lot of the brachytherapists out there want to talk about the ASCEND-RT trial, how there's this tail that they think they've cured more men. That's sort of what you want your therapy to do. There is no tail. And what's even more when you dive into it the delay in metastasis in both RTOG 961 and two is the exact duration of hormone therapy you give. So you're giving everyone, 100% of men, let's just say, let's say six months of hormone therapy in the JATUG trial. So 100% get it. That's really about 12 months of low testosterone because it takes about six months to recover. And when you're a decade out, When most men have not developed metastasis, the delay to the onset of METs is exactly 12 months. And if instead you just held that ADT on all the men, yeah, the METs would happen 12 months sooner, but only maybe about 10, 20% of guys ever develop METs to need that ADT. So you're just overtreating the men. And so this is sort of the nuances that I think a lot of people have yet to sort of dive into and they just take it. As I always tell our trainees, it is the easiest thing you can do is overtreat. That's the easiest thing. The hardest thing is to personalize how you treat because there's always, potentially, did you not treat someone uh, appropriately? But it is always easier to over-treat patients.
0: I'd like to sort of change gears just a little bit and um, just ask you a question about uh, how, uh, how did you get into prostate cancer? Was this always an aspiration of yours and sort of what, what drove that?
2: So fantastic question. Let's see. Um, So when I started residency, um, I, you know, I knew I wanted to treat cancer patients. I went to uh, one of my mentors at the time, Michael Zalewski, who's a prostate cancer doc at Sloan Kettering. And um, he, I said, look, I haven't done a lot of research. So like, although I do a lot of research now coming out of med school, I did had done very little. I knew very little about methodology, clinical trials, et cetera. And I saw all the residents of Sloan Kettering doing all these projects. And so It's like, oh my gosh, like I'm supposed to be doing research. And so my first year I went to Michael Zalewski's office and I said, you know, I wanna do the biggest project you have. And I will, you know, I, I'm gonna to prove to you that I can do this. And he said, okay. And so Sloan Kettering is known for doing this high dose, 86 point, uh, 86.4 gray of radiation therapy over like 10 weeks. He says, look, we haven't updated this in a long time. We've got about a thousand patients we've treated with this. I will go update it. And there was somewhat minimal guidance. And I sort of had the residents sort of helped me design a database and I would wake up and from five till about 7 a.m. before like morning conference, I just put charts, you know, I just plugged information in for an entire year. And so between myself and actually my uh, best friend of the time, Zach Zumsteg. he was working on something similar. We built about a 3,000-person prostate database. Um, and from that, through watching endless amounts of YouTube, going to universities that had free stats courses, um, I spent, you know, my first three years, and I still now, learning basically clinical trials, studying methodology, um, how to do stats, and... Um, I got hooked. Uh, I got hooked on prostate cancer from that. And I think once you get in, I think the coolest thing about research, although the goal is to help patients, obviously, is that the more research you do, the more nuance, the more you dive into the actual literature, you dive into these papers and you realize how everything has limitations and flaws and how sometimes it's just completely overlooked and you can build upon that. And so I think that's sort of the first stage that got me into it. And then just treating the patients. I think I'm, um, I can be, I'll put it this way, I can be myself with prostate cancer patients. You know, prostate cancer patients, we connect naturally. Um, You know, I I sometimes put myself in their shoes or vice versa, and you know, I view them as my family members. You know, I have three brothers and a father. I kind of view it like that when I'm with them. And we talk about important issues. to them that are probably important issues to myself uh, as well. And so I'm always thinking, you know, what would I want to be done to me? And um, yeah, so I I love it. I'm very fortunate that I got turned on to it early on and that it it clicked and it's all worked out.
3: So what, what we like to do with the quad shot is to do just that and bring additional details to people who are maybe in practice. And so, you know, a lot of us in practice maybe see this New England Journal of Medicine article and... Hey, we have to give everybody ADT and salvage prostate radiation. So, um, looking at this, looking at the sport trial, I think a lot of us are in a difficult situation as to okay, well when you know, if if what you're saying about the Shipley data, if that does that apply with the six month duration of ADT as well, you know, what are what are we doing here with ADT?
2: Yeah, so that's fantastic. So let's dive dive into it. So the SPORT trial, which is not published, it should come out hopefully in the next six to 12 months. You know, just to remind people, that's a three-arm trial of post-operative radiation, radiation to the prostate bed plus hormones, and then radiation to the prostate bed plus hormones plus nodes. What is often that is not discussed, and we'll see what the final paper shows. So point one, radiation, arm one versus arm two, which is the question of the benefit of hormone therapy, there was no significant improvement in metastasis-free survival. Okay. Um, second, there's obviously no improvement in survival, but it's short-term follow-up. Two, about 30% of patients on that trial had late salvage radiation. And just like the Shipley trial, until they show me metastasis curves for low PSAs, when we know it is so prognostic and likely predictive um i don't want to extrapolate a patient whose psa is 0.8 to a guy whose psa is 0.2 um and second of all you know or third of all i guess it is um the differences they showed in arm one versus arm three part of that benefit is from the nodal radiation therapy and what's interesting is they showed again, not METs or survival, but they showed biochemical control that at PSAs below their median, which is 0.34, but whatever, it's low, that those patients, there's not even a biochemical control benefit of treating nodes. So for the people in practice, what I tell them is, look, at a PSA of 0.2, there is no data to say treating nodes helps. There is no data to say treating with hormones helps METs or survival. Um. The data for PET imaging at that low PSA, I don't want to say it's useless, but it's most of the scans will be negative. So if you can get your urologist to sort of buy in is if you can treat guys at a PSA of 0.2, the vast majority you will cure without hormones, without nodes and without getting a PET scan. Once you let that PSA get over 0.5, at least in our practice, and it's in NCC and guidelines like axumin it's FDA approved. People are going to be searching to do PET scans. You don't know what the heck to do with METs when you find them. You're going to be buying hormone therapy for these guys. Um, and you probably will be buying treatment of nodes in those guys. And so to me, is I, I guess we'll, we'll further refine this you know, with more data and with longer follow-up with the SPORT trial because it's a huge trial. But I think from PSA is about 0.2 to 0.5. In general, um, I don't add hormone therapy. Uh, if they want to, I mean, I, I encourage a clinical trial for them. Um, obviously, there are subsets of that that may benefit, right? If it's Gleason 9, a persistently elevated PSA of 0.4, okay, you know, there's subsets. It's not prescriptive. But I think the majority of patients probably do not drive a clinically meaningful benefit. And you got to remember is we also now have this whole era of what I call second salvage. And that's going to increase in the community setting where, right, they do surgery. Many are cured by that. Of those who recur, you do salvage. If it's early salvage, the majority are cured. So you're left with this small pool of guys and you can now get pet imaging. And especially what I'm finding is that if they recur just in the pelvic nodes, you can actually salvage a decent percentage. Not all of them, but you can salvage a lot of those guys. And so the life expectancy and the natural history of this disease is just so long. Um, I think you really need to ask yourself, like when I look a patient in the eyes, I ask two things. Can I improve your quantity of life or your quality of life? If I cannot say I can do that, I do not give that treatment, which is why I've told you guys earlier in low risk prostate cancer, I don't treat it ever because I, yet I cannot tell them I can help their quality of life. And I definitely cannot tell them i help their quantity of life. And so I think that's sort of to push on all the trainees coming up There's a lot of treatment options. There's a lot of, you know, innovative, exciting things. But if it doesn't actually help a patient's life, how they feel, how they live, how long they live, I don't know. I think you're treating laboratory values.
3: How do you look at differently between someone with a immediately after prostatectomy who has a a persistently elevated PSA versus someone who's maybe a year or two down the road and has a rising PSA?
2: so we have data that will be another secondary analysis I can't dive too much in but i'll put it this way i think most people acknowledge that having a persistently elevated psa is bad it's a bad prognostic factor i think actually there's been some misconception to it all the studies that say it's a bad prognostic factor are studies that take a thousand guys who have surgery and those with undetectable PSAs versus those with detectable PSAs? Well, of course, if you got a detectable PSA at 0.2, you just failed. Of course, you're going to do worse. But what if you took a 1,000 men who all had recurrence and some had immediate recurrence, persistently elevated disease, and some had later recurrence? What you find is that prognostic difference almost goes completely away. The caveat, though, is guys who have a persistently elevated PSA, and I see this in clinic, now we see a lot of our surgeons operating on higher-risk patients where their their PSA is like 15 after surgery, five after surgery. I've seen it as high as 30 after surgery. When you do PET imaging or imaging, you, you full find that they're just riddled, often with nodal, if not bone mats. So I, I do think the higher that persistently elevated PSA, especially in the context of negative margins, where is that PSA coming from? And you do have to start to have that, that suspicion. And so, again, that is a... a The variables that I use to help push me towards ADT is a high persistently elevated PSA, numerous factors combined, I call it the tea leaves. You've got a T3B, you know, packed full Gleason 9, intraductal tumor, rapidly failed. It's a discussion with that patient. That that type of patient is very poorly represented in any of these trials. You know, they are in, I, I think I wrote in that PRO editorial, you know there's like a percent or two of patients like that and so that's not the majority of patients something that's really exciting that you guys should look for in 2020 is that actually they took the samples of rtog 9601 and ran the decipher test on them and i'll just put it this way i think sooner than later this is going to become a fairly standard of care test for us all to be using.
3: yeah that was, that do you currently yes you know since we have a lot more information to work with now how do you use genomic classifiers in the clinic right now in this scenario
2: yeah i mean i i use decipher on any patient deciding to receive adjuvant radiation and i think now at this meeting you're going to see the raves trial which is a small underpowered trial with some caveats but it showed no improvement of early salvage versus adjuvant but again i think in decipher high or you know the worst of the worst players there may be an advantage but so i use decipher in that setting and probably soon enough be using decipher in the setting in low psa's to help guide me towards who to treat with hormone therapy and that you know obviously we'll need that data to be published first
1: well i think this um discussion has been extremely enlightening in terms of how to really implement um, the data coming out from all these trials and our clinical practices. And that's really what um, all this is ultimately about. So thank you for that. Um, but I do want to make sure that we have time to get to the question that I think is most burning in most of our listeners' mind. Um, how much are you bench pressing these days?
2: Oh, that's not as much as I, I would like to be. Um, I would say that, yeah, not, not as much as I would like. Bench has never been my strongest. I've always been a competitive, strict curler. So I, I curl about one hundred and eighty-five pounds for reps um, on the uh, on the straight bar. So I'm that annoying guy that stands in the squat rack and does curls. Um, but no, I, I I I there's a lot of people much much stronger than me.
0: You heard it right from his mouth. He's a curl guy. So uh, um, we are so honored to have, strict curls. That's right. Well, we are honored to have uh, Dan Spratt with us. He shared so much of his time and so much of his insight. And I know that we'll all be uh, rewarded for having listened to, to that insight. So signing off from the quadcast here live at Astro 2019.